Good morning. Um, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, uh, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. Um, and this morning, I just want to tell you how encouraged I have been uh, in the past weeks at how the Lord is moving in the world. Uh, he is at work, and it's been such a joy to get just a glimpse of that. And even this morning, as uh, we we uh, officially launched these additional deacons, the deacons are a work of the Lord in this place. It is amazing to see that in the face of a pandemic, he's raising up leaders willing to serve faithfully. And we're, we're also uh, at week three now of Missions Month, and God has been so encouraging to my heart uh, as I've had the joy of talking to several of our own missionaries, as well as visiting missionaries, and even many of you just in the congregation here this morning. Um, it's been amazing to hear stories of how faithfully uh, you are serving the Lord in some amazing ways. And just to share with you a few of the stories um, that have been shared with me over these three weeks, uh, I've heard about men who have been passing out Bibles uh, in the courts of Islamic mosques, of women who have been reading the Bible every day for decades to their as yet unbelieving husbands, and of women reaching out to teach their illiterate neighbors how to read so that they can read with their own eyes the words of God. I've heard about mothers and fathers joyfully baptizing their children, knowing that this will mean a life of isolation and yet true joy. And I've heard about families who have been raising their children apart from any support system of family or friends so that they can draw the lost into God's family. And we're going to have the joy this afternoon of hearing even more stories from the ranks who will share similar things about their ministry from Uganda. And all of these things have something in common, whether they're around the world or whether they're here in State College. These are how God is at work. He's at work in the hearts of his people, and these are the direct consequences of the things that we're going to read about this morning. We're going to read today from John 13, uh, which is the story of Jesus at the Passover washing his disciples' feet. So if you are finding that in the Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to read John 13. Uh, and those of you who have been around the Christian faith for very long, I'm sure that this is a familiar story to you. Uh, it, it may be almost so familiar that we skip over it or at least just skim over it uh, as we uh, are eager to get to the story uh, of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But I hope that today, as we read this story, you'll see this as the shocking and life-changing story that it really is. As if perhaps you were reading this for the first time. And maybe it is the first time for some of you. And I encourage you to just be completely moved and transformed by how Christ is at work. Because this story should radically change how we live our lives every single day on this earth. And it should change where we put our hope for the future. So as we read today, I want you to see two main themes that are going to be repeated throughout the text. Uh, the first theme is that Jesus Christ is the loving servant of the Father. That's the first theme. And the second theme is that this loving service 
takes place despite the fact that mankind's sin consistently betrays both him and the Father. And so I've broken these two repeated themes out for us this morning uh, into five separate sections. You'll see those on your outline. Uh, The first, that God has given all things into the care of Jesus. So Jesus serves both the clean and the unclean. And in doing so, shows the humility of the loving master. Even when faced with betrayal. And why does he do this? To the everlasting glory of God and his servants. So let's start by reading together John 13 verses 1 through 5. And I pray that today we are all encouraged and challenged to bring glory to God the Father as we serve everyone in the love of Christ. Read this together with me. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In these verses, we see that the unity between Jesus and God the Father manifests itself as loving service. We see a little bit of the context of this chapter in verses 1 and 2. We hear that Jesus is seated at the table before the feast of Passover. And that that anchors for us a little bit of the when of, of when this is happening. But we also get some crucial insight into the state here of Jesus' heart. First in verse 1, we are told that Jesus knew that his hour to depart this world had come. And that he knew where he was going back to be with his father. Second, we're told in verse 3 that Jesus also knew all things, all things had been given into his hands by the father. And third, we're told in verse 2 that Satan had already turned the heart of Judas towards betrayal. I want you to think about all of this as you consider the actions of Jesus in verse 5. To wash their feet. We know here that Jesus had been given full authority over all things. And that he's about to return to the side of his father in heaven. And sitting here before him. Almost in completely blissful ignorance, unaware of all of this that is going on, are his disciples, including the man who has already established in his heart to betray Jesus. 
What must Jesus' flesh have been crying out for? Maybe to exercise the judgment that was his right. Maybe to just leave now and go to the Father. Just get me out of this situation. Maybe even to just leave the dinner. To have some alone time to deal with all of this that is going on. Friends, what would your flesh have urged you to do in that situation? I doubt that I would have done what Jesus chose to do. What he chooses to do in verse 1 is to love them to the end. And this love we see takes the form of service. He serves them because he loves them all. All of them. He even loves Judas, who will be the instrument of his coming suffering. Jesus loves them all. His, the knowledge of his position and his authority and his relationship with the Father does not drive him to serve himself, but rather it enables him to humbly serve even his betrayer. Because of the love of the Father. Just take a second to think about how, how amazing that is. Think about the kind of sacrificial love that we are seeing here. Take a minute and just silently consider that. It's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? And the only reason that I say it's almost incomprehensible is because Jesus himself promises understanding to his disciples when they also don't get it. We get to see next how Peter responds to this shocking, humble service in section or in verses six through eleven. So as we consider, continue to consider this incredible service, read with me how Peter reacts in verses 6 through 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Friends, in these verses, Jesus explains that this love that he is demonstrating is for both the clean and the unclean. Peter reacts strongly to Jesus uh, here. These actions that he does, 
uh, as Peter is sort of infamous for doing, uh, reacting strongly. He's known for that, and he does so here. But, but think about how scandalous this really is that a teacher and a master, let alone God himself, should be humiliated in this way. Verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? You're the one, Jesus, whom John the Baptist said, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Verse 8, Lord, you shall not wash my feet. You shall never do that. You shall never be humiliated to that point. And yet Jesus lovingly promises him in verse 7 that this service that you see me doing, you do not understand, but you will. One day, Peter, you will understand what this really means. This isn't what it seems to you. This is not, in fact, a humiliation of God, but a glorification of him. This is a picture of my dedication to the love of the Father. To serve him by washing you. You have all been given into my hands, says Jesus. And I choose to love you until the end. So Peter, only by submitting to my plan and my purposes have you become a part of me. And so Peter, the pendulum, swings to the other side, the other extreme. He says, excuse me, he says that that this is not enough that you merely wash my feet, Jesus. In fact, you must wash my hands and my my head. Do you know people like this who, who when faced with, with the correction of the Lord, swing so far to the other way and that they still take, uh, take it maybe to, to the next level? I think that Jesus loves to work with people like this. Uh, and so Jesus says that this is the one who has bathed. Look at verse 10 where Jesus responds to Peter. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. This seems strange that Jesus would respond this way, but he is making it clear that this service that Jesus is performing right there for his disciples is not actually about salvation. What Jesus is doing here that night is not about salvation. It's not even a symbolic baptism of repentance and purification. That has already happened for the disciples. Peter, you have already been cleansed through your repentance. And so this humble service that Jesus performs of love is not about making you any more clean than you already are. This is, in fact, about Jesus receiving all things into his hands and thereby returning to the Father having loved his own until the end. 
And that's why Jesus here serves even Judas. He loves even Judas. Even knowing his unclean state, that his heart had already turned to betrayal, Jesus humbly serves him. Because it is not about his salvation. It is about how Jesus loves on behalf of his father. So friends, how does this apply? We must know that how Jesus treats us has more to do with his position before the father than it does ours. All things, all things have been given into his hands. That includes you and me. And so his love for us is not dependent on our worthiness for it. Because Jesus loves. And because he loves, he served. He served Peter who had repented and had been made clean. And he also served Judas, who was actively plotting against him in the moment that Jesus washes his feet. And friends, he loves and he serves you here this morning. Whether you have given your life to him as your master, or if you have not, he loves you. Because he is love. Because he is love. And as unbelievable as this love may seem to us, it's possible that we could theoretically accept that a God who is himself love might be able to love in this way. This incarnation of love could possibly serve his enemies Confident in his own identity. But friends, that's not where Jesus leaves things. He takes it even a step further. Read with me verses 12 through 20 and we'll talk about the third section. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In these verses, Jesus reaffirms his authority and his lordship. But he draws the same application of service for his disciples that he applies to himself. Humble, sacrificial service to those who the master loves. Imagine with me here this morning the confusion of Peter and the disciples in the face of this humiliating act that Jesus performs. Just just wait a minute, Jesus. We thought that you were our teacher and our Lord, but you're behaving a lot like a servant. Does, does that mean that you're not as esteemed as we thought that you were? If you humiliate yourself, maybe we had it wrong. And so Jesus answers for them their unspoken question in verse 13. He says, yes, you are right to call me master and Lord because I am. And that means that you are my servants. You are my messengers. And this act that I have done this morning should change the way that you view everything. To paraphrase verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, If I am your Lord and teacher and I serve you like this, then how can you do any less than what I have done for you? If you are truly my disciples, then you don't get to judge someone unworthy of your love and your service. Because I have not judged you unworthy of mine. But again, Jesus knows that not all of his audience are, in fact, his true disciples. So in verse 18, he reiterates again that he is not talking here about everyone who claims to be his follower. He says, I know whom I have chosen. And this implies that those Christ has made wholly clean are subject to this commandment to love everyone and to serve everyone. But not everyone is clean. Not everyone has been chosen. This simple washing that Jesus performs for his disciples that he has just completed there, shocking though this service is, it does not imply spiritual cleanliness. This has not transformed everyone who has received this service. And so we should not be surprised by the betrayal that is coming, Jesus says. Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. But friends, even that is not outside of God's control. 
And so Jesus here quotes a passage from Psalm 41. And I encourage you to read it, although I won't read it here. This is a psalm of King David where he laments the glee with which his enemies are awaiting his death. And he is grieved over the betrayal of his close friend who also hopes that the worst would happen to him. And yet the psalm concludes as he trusts in the Lord to restore him and to raise him up to God's presence forever. God has the final word. And that final word transforms even the betrayal of God's son into a victory. And so in verse 20, Jesus wraps up this part of the discussion by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so this, brothers and sisters, is where the power to love and to serve Jesus in this radical way comes from. Jesus draws an unbroken line of love and service between God the Father and him and then to those who serve him. He has empowered them and sent them out with his power and the power of the Father. So the disciples of Christ become the representatives of God the Father who is love. That is beautiful. And so how does this apply to us here this morning? Friends, I said before that how Jesus treats us has more to do with his position than it does ours. And now I want you to know that how we treat others has more to do with the position of Jesus than it does their position or ours. I said before that his love for us is not dependent on our worthiness for it. And now I want you to know that our love for others must not be dependent on their worthiness for it. See, it has nothing to do with them or even with us. It has to do with him. Even when it seems humiliating. Even when those who we are serving seem unworthy Or are unclean. As Jesus asks of us. How can we do less. Than Jesus Christ. Who is our Lord. And our master. He was the personification. Of the father's love. And he loved until the end. And so now we. Commissioned by him. As his representatives. On this earth must do the same. And we are promised that whoever receives our love on his behalf receives the love of Jesus, which is the love of the Father. That is our mission here this morning. But brothers and sisters, if we take an honest look at our hearts, 
that is harder to do than we would like to admit. We feel justified in our judgments because we are right. We feel entitled to our political, political animosities because they are wrong. We do not want to give the appearance of approval by serving an unjust system. We hold on to our resentments and our hurts. We give in to our flesh and we rage or we withdraw and we simply stew in our animosity. And I confess before you here this morning, church, that I have been struggling with this question deeply recently. How do I interact as a follower of Christ with institutions or with individuals who stand against him? And I think, friends, that the answer for me is in this text this morning. God has been speaking to my heart. How do I interact? I love like Jesus loved. And I serve like Jesus served. This love and this service does not imply spiritual cleanliness. And it does not validate their actions. But it might, it just might, draw them to the one who could offer them a true cleansing. A true baptism of the Holy Spirit. So how can I do less than my master who humbled himself to wash the feet of both his friends and his betrayer? Who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross? I have been challenged that being unwilling to humbly serve as my master served, that would be my greatest failure. Failing to do as he did. Which brings us to the sad fact of the betrayal of Judas. As we read this portion of text, I want, you, I want to very quickly highlight two main things this morning. First, that Jesus feels the sorrow of his betrayal. And second, that he is still sovereign. Read with me verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, 
Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Friends, the first thing that I want to point out in this section from verse 21 is that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Friends, here, Jesus is emotional. He has full knowledge of this betrayal long before this moment. But it still hurts. It still hurt him deeply. Which is another reason that I think he quotes from David earlier in this text. Jesus knew that this would happen. And he's even actively encouraging it to happen. But he was no less wounded because of it. And second thing that I want to point out to you is from verses 26 and 27. Where Jesus identifies his betrayer before Satan had even entered into Judas. And afterward, he addresses Satan directly, saying, what you are going to do, do quickly. Friends, what I'm trying to pull out here is that even though this happens and it hurts Jesus, even Satan was not beyond the authority for Jesus to command. And although literally no one else at the table has any idea of what's going on, Jesus is in control. So how does this apply to us, friends? First of all, know that though our calling is to serve and to love, when we fail, Jesus is still in control. And though he is hurt, By those failures. He still loves us. And likewise as his ambassadors. When we are hurt. By the betrayals of this world. It is okay for us to feel that. Loving Jesus does not mean. That you become a stone. Impervious to pain. Jesus felt pain. He felt the pain of his betrayal. The pain of destroyed relationships. The pain of loneliness and loss. The pain of a world that is not as it should be. Last week, Peter shared an excellent message for us about how to voice your objections to these things in a godly way. So know that as Christians, we do not become numb to the betrayals of the world. But your second application is to not be consumed by those betrayals of the world. They will happen again and again and again. Jesus promised this. But friends, Jesus is still in control. He was in control even of his own betrayal and death. There is nothing that has not given into his hands by the Father. 
So when we sit at his table and we look around and we try to guess what it is that he is saying. Is Jesus sending Judas to buy food, to to maybe give something to the poor? What is really going on here, people? We can know. We can know that he is in control. And we can know that according to Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what is the purpose? What is all of that? All of these things that are happening in that moment and here in 2020, what is Jesus working toward? To what end is Jesus orchestrating all of this love and betrayal and service? What is it accomplishing? It is accomplishing, friends, the everlasting glory of God and of his servants. Read with me the end here, chapter of the end of chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Friends, in this last section, we see that the purpose of Jesus, the Son of Man, is to glorify God. There's so much glory in verses 31 and 32 that it's just passed around and multiplied over and over again. Because of Jesus' faithfulness, God glorifies him. And if Jesus, who is God's faithful servant, is glorified, then God is further glorified. Which means that God's plans are being accomplished. Which is even more glorious. Look how intertwined and and, and inseparable is the glory of Christ and the glory of God the Father. But remember that there's that link, that chain unbroken, that Jesus promises he will link himself to those who carry his message. 
And so his messengers and his servants become linked to God the Father. And so even greater glory is accomplished. And so he gives this new command in verse 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So friends, the defining characteristic of a Christ follower becomes something new. Not simply, not simply knowing the teachings of their master. Not simply believing their philosophies. Not simply following them where they go. But if you are a disciple of Christ, then you don't merely know his teachings, but you will love like he loved. You don't merely believe his philosophy, but you will serve like he served. You will carry the message of his father to the ends of the earth. So in conclusion, how does this apply? Friends, allow the oneness of Christ and God the Father to transform your life so that you begin to love like he loved. That you love the unclean and the clean. That you serve the unworthy. And above all, that in everything that you do, you glorify Christ. Because he As he is glorified, God is glorified. And that even if you fail, like Peter would, as Jesus promises from verse 38, know that Jesus is still sovereign. All things have been given into his hands, even your failures. And so even our failures can be used by him For the greater glory of God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. Lord, in our successes and in our failures. In our service to one another. Our service to believers. Our service to unbelievers. Our service, God, um, in all things here in in State College, here in our homes, around the globe, God. May we serve so that you are glorified. Amen.